in advance. So this is just by happenstance, th this really spooky, dark story is one week before uh, Halloween. Um, this is absolutely one of the strangest stories, if not in the Old Testament, certainly maybe the whole, the whole Bible. 1 Samuel 28, we're going to start because the first few verses deal with David. If you remember, David has left Israel. He has, in a sense, run away from God and his calling, and he has just sought refuge in the land of the Philistines, and he's been there for 16 months. And he's been living in deception, serving King Achish, the Philistine king, by, he says to Achish, I'm raiding the Israelites. And Achish is like, this is great. But David's actually been raiding Philistine uh, tribes to the south. And so he's in this deception, and he's really in a, actually a, quite a dark place. We talked about that last week. But for the time being, he's had that relief. Saul has stopped chasing him, and he's surviving. And he has a city, so he's actually doing a lot better than he was in Israel. Verse 1 says, In those days the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel, and Achish said to David, Oh, you must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. And David said, Then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. And Achish replied, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now, there's a scene change immediately after this, but if you were watching a television show, this is, remember last week I talked about the wages of sin is expensive and the bill doesn't always come due immediately, but the bill is coming due? This is the bill coming due in David's life. David has been trying to survive through deceiving Achish. Now Achish is like, oh, we're mounting our armies against Israel. Good news, David. You can go to the front lines. You can fight for me. You're amazing. And David's like, yeah, I'll show you what I can do. It's going to be great. So this is David between a rock and a hard place. What's he going to do now? Because now his deception is coming home to roost. And again, big cliffhanger, big scene change that happens. Now the camera pans to Saul. Verse 3, Samuel was dead. That was the prophet Samuel. And all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his own tomb at Ramah. Saul, the king, had expelled mediums and spiritists from the land. Depending on your translation of the Bible, you might get uh, witches or uh, soothsayers or magic users. Um, they all kind of mean the same thing. We'll talk about that in a second. But this preamble is really important. The text wants us to understand and remind us of two things. Samuel, the prophet, is dead. And Saul had gotten rid of all the mediums and spiritists from the land, those who consult the dead, offer to guide other people by getting in touch with uh, supernatural spirits. Now, why was this done? Why had King Saul done this? Well, he'd done it because God told his people when God was setting up Israel to be a nation that they had parameters for almost every part of their life, economic, relational, societal, including how one goes about securing guidance especially in times of trouble. In Leviticus 19, God says, do not turn to mediums or seek out spirits or spiritists, for you will be defiled by them. That word means polluted. I am the Lord your God. In Leviticus 20, God says, I will set my face against anyone who turns to mediums and spiritists to prostitute themselves by following them. I will cut them off from their people. A few verses later, a man or a woman who is a medium or spiritist among you must be put to death. 
You are to stone them. Their blood will be on their own heads. And then in Deuteronomy, when the law gets repeated for a new generation going into the land, and they're kind of wondering, like, which of the law do we have to take into the land? Like, is it all still binding? And Moses does this long, extended review of what God wants for his people. He says, let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire. So child sacrifice who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, casts spells, who is a medium or spiritist, anyone who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Because of these same detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. You, speaking to all of Israel, you must be blameless before the Lord your God. The nations you will dispossess listen to those who practice sorcery and divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. So Saul has removed these people from the land because he's followed, to this point, God's instructions regarding making sure that there is spiritual purity in the land. It's not wrong to find yourself in crisis. It's not wrong to be confused about things. It's not wrong to seek guidance. But again and again, God says, I am a God who draws near to my people to guide and direct them. So not only should you not go to someone else offering to draw upon supernatural powers to guide you, but why would you want to do that? Like when you have access to me. Verse 4, so that's the context. There's no mediums in the land. Samuel's dead. The Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem, while Saul gathered all Israel and set up camp at Gilboa. And when Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid, terror filled his heart. It's an escalation, again, it's repeated. He was afraid, terror filled his heart. Saul kind of starts his life and his journey well in a lot of ways, has these powerful experiences with God, but now you fast forward after all these decades and fear and insecurity have become the defining characteristic of who he is. David looked across a battlefield and saw Goliath and said, oh yeah, that's no problem for God. Saul just sees the army. And he's like, we're doomed. He's flooded and overwhelmed with fear. So Saul, verse 6, inquired of the Lord. He prayed, he asked God what he should do. But the Lord did not answer him by dreams, by Urim, or by the prophets. So sometimes God spoke to leaders in dreams in the Old Testament or by Urim, which is a priestly method of revelation, or by prophets. None of those uh, vehicles um, are a source of revelation or guidance for Saul. Uh, God does not answer him. Saul then said to his attendants, I want you to find me a woman who is a medium so that I may go and inquire of her. And they said, there is one in Endor. Which kind of begs the question, how did they know there was one in Endor? That seems sketch. How did they, how did they arrive at that answer so quickly? They didn't even feign like, well, you know, so I don't know. It's going to take us a long time. You expelled them from the land. Who can know where to find one of these things? They're like, oh, yeah, there's one in Endor. It's like, just, just, down, just down the road. Verse 8, so Saul disguised himself. That's important because what that means is Saul removed his kingly robes removed the outward um, trappings of his authority and identity as a king. He divested himself of that. 
and he put on a disguise. He wanted to appear just like a regular person. He put on other clothes, and then at night, in secret, so no one knows about it, he and two men went to the woman. And he says to her, I want you to consult a spirit for me. Bring up the one whom I name. The woman said, she's kind of playing dumb. She's like, oh, surely you know what King Saul has done. He, he cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? She's like, I understand the law. I can be killed for this. Why are you trying to encourage me into this? And Saul swears to her by the Lord. As surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. So the woman says, well, whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, Saul says. There's a pretty big irony in the story here because if you've been tracking, you sort of remember Saul hasn't never really listened to Samuel throughout his life, but he's now going to him and trying to consult him. Whether or not he's actually going to listen to his advice again, we're not really sure, but there's a definite hint of irony here that when Samuel was alive, you didn't listen to him, Saul, but now that he's dead... You're going to listen to him? Verse 12, when the woman saw Samuel, so this um, figure appears, she cried out at the top of her voice. I mean, she screamed. She was surprised. And she said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You're Saul. And the king said, don't be afraid. Just tell me what you see. The woman said, I see a ghostly figure coming up out of the earth. The word there is... Uh, stronger than ghostly figure. It's Elohim. It means a divine figure. It means a figure of power, like of significance, a, um, a, a, uh, as much as it could be. Like a, it's, not a, it's not a hallucination. It's a tangible, spiritual being. I see an Elohim coming up out of the earth. And Saul's like, what does he look like? It's an old man wearing a robe who's coming up, she said. And then Saul knew it was Samuel, and he bowed down, and he prostrated himself with his face to the ground. And Samuel said to Saul, so now the figure speaks, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul said, I am in great distress. The Philistines are fighting against me. God has departed from me. He no longer answers me, either by prophets or dreams. So I have called on you to tell me what to do. Saul's heart is laid bare. He's completely desperate. He recognizes that God has shut him out. He's looking for guidance, really just on how to survive, right? He's filled with terror. And Samuel, this spiritual figure, this apparition says, why do you consult me now that the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. Meaning dead. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. This is a huge judgment. Saul thinks he's going to procure Samuel's help. Samuel comes with the judgment of God. 
And there's debate about whether or not this really was Samuel or was it a demonic spirit. I think it was. I think it's God actually intervening and raising up Samuel. The, the witch at Endor, more famously called the medium, she's surprised when she sees uh, Samuel, well, anything appear. She screams. She wasn't expecting it. And I think Samuel being a conduit of God's judgment on Saul shows us that this really happened, but it was God's doing. It wasn't the, um, the woman herself bringing Samuel forward. Immediately, verse 20, Saul fell full length to the ground. So he's already prostrate, and then he just like flattens himself out like a pancake. He's filled with fear because of Samuel's words. This is like deep doom has set upon him. His strength was gone for he had not, for he had eaten nothing all that day and all night. So whether that means he was unable to eat and um, just so troubled in his spirit and so knotted up and with fear and anxiety that he couldn't hold any food down or that he had somehow fasted because he's kind of like, I'm going to consult the dead and I'm getting in some crazy weird stuff and I'm going to kind of be protect myself through some kind of ritual fasting. We're not sure, but he's in a weakened state. He's in a vulnerable state. Verse 21, when the woman came to Saul and saw that he was greatly shaken, she said, look, your servant has obeyed you. I took my life in my hands and I did what you told me to do. So please listen to your servant and let me give you some food so that you may eat, you can have strength, and then you can go on your way. Because she's like, I do not want a dead king on my hands. I was just doing what I was told. Saul refuses, says I won't eat. The woman, sorry, uh, but his men joined the woman in urging him and eventually he listened to them. He got up from the ground and he sat on the couch. And the woman had a fat, fattened calf at her house and she butchered it at once. She took some flour, she kneaded it and made bread without yeast. And then she set it before Saul and his men and they ate. And that same night they got up and they left. So again, it's a dark, it's a spooky, it's a weird chapter. And it's also kind of a depressing passage. And it's meant to be. It's meant to be very, very dark. Because it, it's meant to show us, show us how far Saul has fallen from the once physically imposing and dominating king who was anointed by God. God's spirit was poured out on him. He prophesied. He won victories for God. And now... He's, in his desperation, consulting a spiritist to figure out if there's any way that he can save his own skin. In 1 Samuel 15, when Saul is first confronted by Samuel, when he was alive, on failing to properly honor God and obey God as the king, Samuel said to Saul, in reference to Saul's rebellion, he says, for rebellion, and the inference there is, Saul, your rebellion, your rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. It's that bad. And your arrogance like the evil of idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord, you haven't listened to it uh, with an ear to understand it, you haven't listened to it with an ear to actually obey it, God has rejected you as king. So Saul goes from rebelling in a way that was like divination or witchcraft to actually participating in that very thing. And so the fall of Saul is kind of complete. In Chronicles, which is a separate book, and it, when it summarizes Saul's life, it kind of talks about how he was a failed king 
And the thing that it notes was that he even consulted the mediums and the spiritists. Like that was like the apex of Saul's failure as a God-fearing king. And so if you feel a heaviness thinking about Saul and where he has moved into in the space that he now occupies in the story, you're not alone. Saul is one of the most tragic figures in the Bible. There's no doubt about it. But the Bible also tells us that these stories, especially the ones that precede Jesus in the Old Testament, they were written for our instruction. We can learn a lot from them. So studying what ends up being these final hours of Saul's life are are very, very helpful. So in this chapter, I just want to talk about two things that stand out to me. One is obvious and one is sort of less so. So let's start with the really striking, obvious, kind of um, noticeable feature of this whole passage, which is this encounter with this witch or spiritus or medium. In verse 6, Saul says, find me a woman who is a medium so that I may go and inquire of her. Sorry, verse 7. So Saul did something that was clearly and consistently forbidden in Scripture. He consults a medium. Now, um, a medium or spiritist, sometimes um, they can be referred to as, again, soothsayers. There's um, different ways of, of talking about magic users in the Bible. Um, probably the most common are divination or witchcraft, where you're trying to engage in some kind of spiritualized ritual to extract knowledge or guidance from a source of supernatural power apart from God. Um, the, the, sh- the shorthand of why this is wrong is that, well, let's just start pragmatically. There's only two possible things that are at play with someone who would say, I can contact the dead, I can contact spirits or ancestral spirits or whatever it is, and they can provide guidance. You're either talking about someone who's actually in touch in some way, although the mechanisms aren't ever really that clear in scripture, but they are in fact in in touch with some kind of demonic forces. They might not understand them as demonic forces, but that's what they are. Or these are just people who are charlatans who are just telling people what they want to hear, layering sort of vague spiritual notions, oh, your grandfather or this person or an ancestor or this, um, you know, the, this, this spirit or a, um, a spirit guide is giving me this signal to, to tell you, where you're pretending to have great knowledge or um, to discover secrets or to tell fortunes, to predict things to come. But everywhere and always, God forbids his people to participate in anything that um, comes into this realm. And the relevance for us today, just to put a finer point on it, is, you know, when we're talking about some of these spiritualist practices, it would include some of the things that we've looked at, but things like horoscopes, Ouija boards, um, tarot cards, palm reading, fortune telling, broadly speaking, occult practices even if they are framed as something fun, not a big deal, just some entertainment, these are things that both Jewish believers and then Christian believers for thousands of years have understood from the word of God to say these are off limits for us. Either because they work and you're actually getting in touch with damaging spirits, or they don't work and I'm just wasting a huge amount of time, energy, and often money 
trying to procure guidance when God could give it for free. Now, I read a few scriptures from the Old Testament earlier, but there are some from the letters written to the early Christians so that we understand this isn't just a, 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 um, a don't go there message from the Old Testament. In Galatians 5, when Paul is contrasting the fruit of the Spirit with the works of the flesh or the acts of the flesh, our sinful nature, he says, the acts of the flesh are obvious. It includes things like sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft. And the word in Greek is pharmakia, from which we get pharmacy. But don't worry, going to a pharmacy doesn't make you involved. <laughs> but that's where the word comes from. But it would be to use certain chemicals to elicit an opening into the spiritual realm. It's to try and manipulate things through magical practices. Revelation 21.8, when it speaks of the final judgment, when John is given a vision of the final judgment against those who have refused to turn to God in repentance, he's given a vision of who is a part of this second death. He says the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, murderers, sexually immoral, and those who practice magical arts. The idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Now again, why is involvement in occultism, um, broadly speaking, why is it wrong? Well, again, we're seeking spiritual guidance from powers other than God. And God has promised in his word that those who turn to him, who seek his face, who come to him wholeheartedly, humbly, and with an eagerness to do what he says, that he will guide them. And so it's an unnecessary detour, at least, from just getting a way better sourced, uh, source of power and guidance. And the second reason why it's a sin is because it's an attempt to force your will upon reality according to our desires. Um, you're trying to leverage a ritual or certain incantations or using certain words in reputi uh, repetition or under certain cycles of the moon to align things so that you can sort of push reality in the direction that you want. And in a sense, you're using occult practices to say, my will be done. And God says that's never to be our posture spiritually, in prayer. We are to receive our leading and direction and help not from the spirits or even a particular spirit, but from the Holy Spirit, the clean spirit, God's spirit, confirmed by his word. And we do that always ending our prayer with, but not my will, but yours be done. So occultism is grounded in a self-centered worldview, which is I'm going to learn how to manipulate the forces behind material reality so that what I want, and maybe even want good things. I, I want to find someone who loves me and get married. I want to have children. I want to have guidance. I want to um, feel connected with a lost uh, relative who's long since passed. Those yearnings and longings aren't necessarily bad. But when we Go after them in a way that puts us in alignment with opening ourselves up to exploitation, manipulation, um, yeah, I mean, we're, 
we're, we're in danger. And again, the mechanisms aren't given with a lot of specificity in scripture, meaning we don't know how all of this works. But if God says something clearly and repeatedly no in the old covenant, then reaffirms clearly and repeatedly no in the new covenant, again, it's not because what is being said no to is something good that he's like, I just wanna keep this from you. It's either a complete waste of time or it's dangerous in ways that we actually aren't aware of. And so God says, you center on me, you come to me, you don't participate in anything where you are trying to gain guidance or trying to exert your will into reality and bend supernatural forces uh, the way you want. You submit to my will and I will lead you and guide you in ways that are actually good. And by the end of the story, you have Saul just pancaked on the floor, hungry, weak, And it's a picture of what happens when we stop seeking God and we start turning to false forms of power, wisdom, guidance, and security. So this is a story that warns us where this, whether it's a fascination or a a, a desperation, those things should lead us to God. And we should take very seriously the Bible's warnings, directly and indirectly through stories like this, that we go to him and we center on him alone. But I want to show you that Saul didn't simply decide to consult a medium just because. It came at the end of Saul's life after a long series of disobedience to God. After a long path of walking where he distrusted God. In fact, in verse 6, we read, Saul inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him. So Saul's in a desperate place, but part of the reason for his desperation is that he has asked God for help and God has shut the door. Heaven is closed. And that's due to Saul's consistent and repeated and unrepentant resistance and rejection of God. Saul, again and again, has refused to hear God, has refused to heed God, has refused to obey God, and now his prayers are hindered, literally blocked, And God refuses to hear them. Did you know that the Bible lists several reasons your prayers can be blocked or hindered in some translations? The Bible actually outlines a number of reasons. I'm just going to list three. Pride and selfishness. There's a promise in Scripture, 1 John 5.14, that says, and this is the confidence we have before God in prayer. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. But here's a counter-promise from James 4.3. When you pray for things, you don't get what you ask for because you want them for the wrong things. You want them for your own pleasure. You're asking in order to get. You're not asking and say, God, would you bless me so that I can be a conduit of blessing to other people and your will would be done in my life? You're like, no, God, would you give me, would you prosper me financially so that I don't have to worry about things anymore and I can spend money on what I want to spend money on and I can just have the fun that I want to have? Why isn't God answering my prayer? Because of pride and selfishness. When we pray from a place of pride and selfishness, heaven is shut. The second thing is marital discord and strife. Interesting passage, 1 Peter 3, 7. Peter is instructing husbands. He says, husbands, in a similar way, live with your wives in understanding, with understanding and compassion. Since they are weaker than you are, physically weaker, 
Honor your wives as those who share God's life-giving kindness so that nothing will interfere, literally the Greek word, prevent your prayers of reaching to God. You are not aggressively and maximally seeking to bless and honor your spouse. I mean, you can infer that it goes the other way as well, but the direct thing here is a charge to husbands. If you do not love and honor your wife well, there will there'll be a blockage. And lastly, unconfessed sin. Psalm 66 says, if I had cherished sin in my heart, if I had said, I'm going to honor God in lots of ways, I'm going to go to church, do Bible study, I'll say a little prayer, and I'll... but like over here in this little area where no one sees it or only a few people do, I just, I kind of have this pet sin and it's not really hurting anybody. No, like, it's under control, it's fine. The psalmist says, if I had cherished sin in my heart like that, the Lord would not have listened to me. And then through the prophet Isaiah, God says, listen, or behold, like pay attention, the Lord's hand isn't shortened that he can't save, that he can't save. He's like, God isn't like a T-Rex and it's like, oh, I can't, I can't help you. Sorry, my arms are too short. Nor is his ear too heavy that he can't hear. Your iniquities, your sin have separated you from your God and your sins have hid his face from you. He will not hear you. It's not that he can't. He won't hear you. Sometimes before our relationship with God and even our entire life can actually move forward, we have to repent and turn to God and we have to repair that relationship. We have to get serious with turning away from sin and towards what God is calling us to, to do and how to live. And otherwise, and again, the mechanism, like the timeline here isn't, the details aren't given. But what we do see in Saul's story and we hear repeated it, at some point, if we live in resistance to God, he will stop listening until we first come to him in full repentance. He will not bless and prosper us, which makes sense because if the ongoing urgent need of your child is to be disciplined, you're not going to bless them in that moment because you don't want to teach them that their disobedience and their rejection of you and their um, destructive path, is, you don't, you don't want to reward that. So it's not that God doesn't want to bless us, but he won't if we're continually going down this path that he doesn't want. And what that means is, is that when we are unrepentant, we should not expect sweetness or power or prosperity or joy to fill our lives as Christians. Instead, we should expect to experience a slow deterioration like Saul experienced, where he was weakened. Because obedience to God brings life to our very bones, and disobedience brings a rot. Not at first, maybe. At first, it feels like we get away with it. But over time, we are weakened spiritually. So I don't want anyone to misunderstand me. I'm not saying we're saved by our good works. We're not saved by our obedience. We're saved by uh, grace, by placing our faith in Christ. But once we are saved, our obedience, our cooperation with God, absolutely has a huge material impact on our experience and walk with God day to day. So if you are a Christian and you're like, well, I gave my heart to Jesus back in Bible camp when I was 15, and I'm kind of living my own life, but God seems really distant from me. Problem must be on God's end. Or like, what's wrong? Why isn't God like, why aren't I experiencing flow or connection? Well, the first place to look is like the, David does so often in the Psalms and say, 
God, is there like secret sin? Is there, is there a wayward thing that I'm like avoiding? Am I actually giving you lip service? And other people projecting like, I'm serious about my relationship with you, but I'm not actually trying to walk with you. We have to start with repentance. So one question for us all this week is, is there repentance and repair that needs to be done in your walk with God? Because maybe God has allowed you to get into a season where it feels like your prayers are hitting the ceiling. And God is allowing you to experience that in order to send a message that you need to actually return to him wholeheartedly. Okay, in closing, I know that Saul is a character. um, It's a sad story, right? And Saul, it almost feels like he's faded. It almost feels like this was the trajectory right from the start. It feels like he's destined to end his life in tragedy. And maybe there's people here who feel the same. Maybe you've walked a long disobedience, a slow rebellion, and it hasn't been... No one has seen your heart, what's going on in your heart, so it doesn't look that bad to people around you, but inside you're weak and you're finding yourself visiting places that honestly you would have never thought you would have gone to 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And I want you to hear this. No matter how dark or desperate your path is, that you, even that you're on, the path that you've taken, that there's actually real, like really real substantial transformative hope for you. Like there really, really is. And I know that, and I can say it from this story alone. Now, you might think, what? How is this story hopeful in any way? It just seems like one big warning. And that's true. But there's a grace note here that is very, very subtle. But it's very, very important for us to pick up on. Verse 24. The woman had a fat, fattened calf at the house, which she butchered at once. She took some flour, kneaded it, and baked bread without yeast. Bread without yeast is unleavened bread. This is Saul's Last Supper. Like, literally. It's Saul's Last Supper. And to the Old Testament covenant mind, that, that detail unleavened bread that signals oh passover when god rescued his people exited them out of egypt what we're seeing here and this is pretty sophisticated but it's important to understand because this is another example where when people are like the bible is just made by human beings you just can't imagine how foolishly stupid that is you do not understand the complexity and sophistication of scripture here's one example bookmark it saul we're, we're, we're being shown a counterfeit Passover here that is going to signal an exodus. Saul's exit from this life. It will happen the next day. And the reason that's hopeful for me is because there is a hint here of a true and better Last Supper, a true and better exodus, a true and better king who won't end his life in failure and in a pitiful state where God has rejected him. See, but a thousand years later, the true King Jesus, he will prepare a final supper for his disciples. He will break unleavened bread as part of a Passover meal. And this king, like Saul, 
He prepares for an exodus from this world. He understands the next day he's going to his death. But because of this king's faithfulness and his obedience, his perfect obedience, even to death on a cross, this king's life will not end in tragedy and death. It will actually end in resurrection triumph. And his death and resurrection will enable all those who trust in him to be saved from the forces of darkness, from the forces of evil, from the forces of sin, and from the forces of death forever. And so I can say with confidence, there is hope for anyone who trusts and follows King Jesus because he loves you. And he has come to seek and to save you no matter how lost you are. So don't harden your hearts against him like Saul did. Let your desperation lead you to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Let's pray. The story shows us just the failure of King Saul and it holds a mirror to the failures of our own heart, God. And in a world where our leaders fail us, where we fail ourselves, we fail each other, thank you that you are the faithful one. No matter what paths we've walked down, thank you that your death and resurrection opens up a possibility for new life and new hope. Bring this message home into the hearts of each of us, God, but for those who are wandering from you. Amen.